one of the things to remember when you're opening up a policy is look at the whole thing that you're trying to put together, the package you're trying to put together, the demand itself, what you're asking for in the release. Hey, this is Sean Kernakin, and you're tuned into Civil Action. This is the podcast of Cabotech LLP. We're a firm in downtown LA that does a lot of different work on the plaintiff's side. And we put this podcast on so we can share with you what we are learning about the law. Our weekly podcast is dedicated to important topics for lawyers and issues in the law. We have guests. We talk about recent cases. We talk about trends. We talk about practice areas. We try to help people be better lawyers and learn about the law. In some ways, you can look at this as a 15 to 20 minute law school class each week. Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek, along with Sean Kardekian. Say hello, Sean. Hello. Sean, why don't you tell folks what we're going to be talking about specifically? Sure. Today, Today, we have a couple of interesting and important cases in the insurance world. We're going to talk about the Pinto case, which clarified and somewhat raised the standard for insurance bad faith. And then we're going to be talking about the Hedayati case, which actually is a great example of how insurance companies kind of put a couple of dollars over the rights of people and can really screw themselves. And it lays out a good way of setting up companies for insurance bad faith. Actually, I think what we're really going to be talking about is how to set up an insurance company. You never set up an insurance company. Let's start with that basic. They do it themselves. That's right. They're completely capable of screwing up themselves. How you open up the lid on a policy or how the law allows you to open up the lid on the policy. So why don't we start with that basic premise, talking about that, because I think that's largely misunderstood. It it is not an issue that applies to a first party claimant. It doesn't apply to the victim of an accident. It applies really to the policyholder, him or herself. And when somebody is responsible for an accident and they have insurance, their insurance company's obligation is to defend and protect them, right? Right. The insurance company's duty is to their insured. Their duty isn't to the third party. So, and I think with that, a good place to start is the Pinto versus Farmers case. This is a case, the opinion is fairly recent, came down in March of 2021, if I'm I'm not mistaken. Long story short, it involves the jury instruction, the longtime jury instruction that we've used for insurance bad faith cases, KC2334, which says that in order to establish insurance bad faith, you need to show that the insurance company rejected a reasonable settlement demand, right? That's what, that's what the language said. That's what we all believed. But Sean, I think it's, I think it's important to start with a basic fundamental understanding about what we're trying to talk about here. And that's where somebody has a policy that is inadequate potentially to cover the damages to the plaintiff in the underlying personal injury case, right? Sure. Let's give a very dumbed down ex- example. Pretend you're explaining it to me, because that way you, you, you can pretend that I'm dumb. Okay. I'll talk like this. No, nope, so- not. It's- <laughs> so let's use the example that you have. Someone gets into a car accident. You know, you, you have the- Somebody gets dumb. into a car. Let's just do this. Somebody gets into a car accident. They have $25,000 of insurance. They're the cause of the car accident, and they cause horrible injuries to somebody else, paraplegic, for example. And all they have is the $25,000 of insurance. And the insurance company's obligation is to protect their insured, right? It's They don't have obligations to the victim, sadly. That's the state of the law right now in California. And what that means, the obligation to protect their insured, means they have to do whatever it takes. And, and you know, don't, don't use that those words literally, but they, they have to 
do whatever it takes to protect their insured from a judgment that would be in excess of those policy limits. Meaning if there's $25,000 worth of coverage, they have to do whatever it takes to make sure that the injured party takes that 25,000 and they have no other claim left against their insured, the person. That right. They get a complete and full release, release in exchange for payment of the $25,000. That's the carrier's so-called obligation. Now that obligation doesn't arise automatically. There's been talk about that, but it's not an automatic obligation. In fact, the carrier doesn't have an obligation to simply send a $25,000 check to the horribly injured person in my hypothetical, right? But if the lawyer or the person says, I want the $25,000 policy limit, and I'll ex- in, in exchange for that, I'll give you a complete release of any and all claims, that's when the insurance company's obligation starts. You're right. It's not an automatic obligation, right? There has to be, like in our example, horrible injuries that clearly exceed $25,000. So what's the standard there? Does it get a little murky there? Well, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is very murky. And I think there's a misconception out there in the plaintiff's part that this is automatic, that it automatically gets triggered, that once you send a letter demanding the $25,000 and the insurance company fails to pay it, that they're then going to be responsible for every penny above and beyond the $25,000. And let's just use that as the first benchmark here and dispel that. That's not the law. It doesn't work that way. It might get close to working that way in the example that Brian gave, where it's horrible injuries, someone's a paraplegic, or they have a lifetime of care ahead of them, and it's a, a liability is super obvious. You know, It might work that way. But most of the time, a lot of times, you have something where someone, let's say they have a bad back injury, which might exceed $25,000, but the insurance company does have the right, in fact, they have the duty to investigate and find out exactly how bad the injuries are, or find out exactly why their insured is at fault, you know, if liability can be established against their insured. So what the plaintiff's lawyer's job to do, the victim's lawyer's job in that circumstance is to provide as much information as possible to the insurance company to show that the injured person's claim exceeds the policy limits of in our example, 25,000. Right. And and what you're really talking about here is a reasonable standard or unreasonable standards we talk about once we get into the penal case. But I want to go back to this notion of people thinking that it's a bright line rule. It's not a bright line rule. And I know there are some lawyers out there that think that they want to give, you know, five days notice or weekend, a week's notice and, and over the weekend, and they've got to respond. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I caution people about that kind of rule because The minute you try to set up the insurance company, which is one of our themes that I think we should have here, is it can backfire on you. Let me me ask you a kind of question just to illustrate the point here. So you can't, let's say you have a client that's injured, not a horrible, horrible injury, but soft tissue damage. It's a $25,000 policy. Can you just send them a letter that says, give me the $25,000 within five days? And then if they come back and ask you some questions and they say, give us a few more days and we have we want copies of the MRIs or something and they don't give you 25,000, they don't accept your offer to settle. Does that mean they're automatically on the hook for bad faith? No, I mean, there's no automatic under any circumstance here, right? right. So obviously in the first hypothetical I use with the paraplegic, it's pretty close to automatic. If you sent a letter and you gave them proof that the person was rendered paraplegic as a result of the accident. But even then you need proof. You can't just send out a demand that says, give me the policy limit. Right. right? I mean, even the cases that are most favorable to the plaintiff have some initial that the insurance company knew the condition of the person who was hurt, right? So that yeah. they have that kind of information. 
and that there's some degree of cooperation, both by the insured and by the victim about providing that kind of information. Okay, so we look at that and then we see your hypothetical with someone with, you know, so-called soft tissue injuries and a refusal to provide information is going to be deemed inadequate. And an insurance company comes back and says, I need more than five days. I need to understand your client's injuries. We're willing to you know, be cooperative. Whatever flowery language the insurance company wants to use, you have some duty to cooperate there. Look, I'll provide you with the following. I'll extend this for 30 days, but you have to make your decision at the end of 30 days. Something like that, because we are always talking about a reasonable standard. So I think that leads to, and we'll talk a little bit more about this case, Pinto versus Farmers. I want to say one thing before we get into Pinto, sure. Sean, and I want to make this clear for people who are listening to this. This rule does not apply to uninsured motorists. People have a complete misperception about this. They think that if you make a demand for benefits to be paid under an uninsured motorist policy or an underinsured motorist policy, and the carrier fails to pay that you've opened the policy limits for the underinsured or uninsured motorist policy. That's just not true. Oh, you're saying an injured person making a claim against their own carrier for underinsured or uninsured motorist, right? Right. And the key to that is to understand the whole concept here. It's not a rule protecting the victim of the accident. It's protecting the insured. Right. And so it, unless there's some, some magical world where you can sue yourself and your own insurance company has a duty to keep yourself from getting a big judgment against yourself. And that's obviously insane. And that doesn't exist. It, this rule wouldn't apply in UM, UIM situations. Right. And let me use my example that I was using before about the paraplegic. You're now the individual or the lawyer representing the, the person who caused this horrible accident. Your client has gotten an opportunity to get out of harm's way for the amount of his or her policy limits. And the insurance company refuses. The minute they do that, they've jeopardized your client. That's what this is about. So a lot of people think that the same rule applies for uninsured or underinsured motorists, and it simply doesn't. And I just wanted to note that here as an important head note for people to understand both the theory and the logic behind the rule in the first place and the reason how and why it doesn't operate for uninsured or underinsured motorists. So going back to what one of the things you said earlier, the, the reasonableness standard. So first of all, I think that's something that everyone needs to understand. And I think there's no dispute about this. The demand that's being made by the injured party or the injured party's lawyer to the insured, to the responsible party and their insurance company has to be reasonable, correct? That's kind of the, the, the first threshold issue. It has to be a reasonable demand. Soft tissue damage, give me, give me the million dollar policy limits. That's probably not going to be reasonable. Again, I keep saying soft tissue and not to demean anyone that, that has that type of injury. I'm trying to use extremes here. You know, million dollar demand for a case where somebody has to go to the chiropractor for two weeks. That's already, that's going to be on the, the unreasonable end of the spectrum. Right. But as and you start moving down the spectrum, you, you start getting more gray areas. Right. And as we think about reasonable, we think about reasonable in the context of the demand being reasonable. And then the insurance company's conduct has to be unreasonable. And that's an important part about Pinto. So set up Pinto for us, Sean. Sure. So Pinto involves someone that was injured, typical car accident type of case. And the policy limits were, I believe, a $50,000 policy limit. And the insurer was farmers. And a policy limits demand was made by the in injured party to the insurance company in the amount of $50,000 
so the full policy limits, with a two-week expiration date, right? And the demand contained some other conditions in there. And farmers wanted to accept it, but they didn't acquiesce to all of the conditions laid out by the, uh, by the plaintiff's lawyer that was making the demand. And then the plaintiff's lawyer took the position that the demand was blown, and they ultimately ended up settling with the insured, where they agreed that the settlement would be the equivalent of a $10 million judgment against the insured, right? Right. And so let's just put that pause button right there. One of the ways to do this, where an insurance company fails to accept a demand within policy limits, and oftentimes it arises where there's complete failure to defend, is that people try to stipulate to a, a settlement. And, and you can do that. It's just very dangerous because one of the issues here that exists is the collusive nature of any kind of arrangement between the policyholder and the insured. The recommended way to do it is the very best way is to do it in front of a jury in superior court. Time consuming, takes a long time to get there, maybe an unnecessary expense of money. The next best way is probably a reference under 638, 639 CCP section. Plus- the code of civil procedure, Sean. No, no, it's no. Okay, what's a reference? I'll explain it to you later. No, just just so people understand, a reference trial is where you agree that a private judge or an arbitrator or someone's going to decide the dispute. Right. I thought it. you wanted to know what the code of civil procedure of the state of California. I was. do. I don't I know what was, that is either. I, I don't know what was, that is either. I was simultaneously worried and not surprised at the exact same moment. Right. But I think something to kind of clarify in the facts here is when that two-week demand was made, the other conditions in there were things that in and of themselves weren't unreasonable, but they were things like, you know, show us proof that the insured wasn't in the course and scope of employment, get us declarations pages, show us that that there's no other policies that apply. And farmers' response was, we, there's no way we could possibly do this in two weeks. Give us more time. You know, we, we, we want to accept this, but we, we need more time to comply with your other conditions. The plaintiff's lawyer there, the victim's lawyer said, uh-uh, gotcha. And, and, and how did the gotcha turn out? Well, you know, I'm always cautious in cases like this where the court of appeal can certainly spin the facts in favor of the best yeah. light of their opinion. So I don't know what happened. And I really think the important thing to take away from this case is that what the – first of all, I don't think Pinto is groundbreaking. I know people out there have said, oh, my God, this Pinto case has come down. It's terrible for the plaintiff's bar. But the first thing the case said was you need to make sure that you've got a jury instruction that talks about whether or not the insurance company acted unreasonably. That's the standard you've got to put in there. The jury has to find that the carrier acted unreasonably. It's not enough, as you said earlier, for the offer to be reasonable. That's a component. But was it unreasonable for the insurance company not to accept it? And and I, I just want to tell you that this opinion really bothers me because at that moment, so they make the conclusion that it's not the right jury instruction. Then they blame the plaintiff's lawyer for that, which I don't see from the record that it was the plaintiff's lawyer's entire fault. You know, the plaintiff's lawyer was just being an advocate arguing for a specific type of instruction. And then they say, we're going to take the whole award away. We're not going to remand it back for reconsideration for a new jury. We're going to say, no, you have no case. It's done. It's over. So that's the part of the decision I really, really hate. But the cautionary tale here is be careful with these jury instructions. They really do mean something. They may not mean that much to the jury. I mean, my personal view of reading this opinion is that the jury would have found that the carrier acted unreasonably if they had put that instruction in there. But- they didn't, and they got the whole thing taken away from them. 
I, I absolutely agree. I, I too very strongly agree that it's not a groundbreaking case. And I mean, sharing my own experiences doing insurance cases ourselves at the firm, when this case came down, I had at least two or three cases where the defense lawyer said, oh, well, now that Pinto came down and they were citing this in, in not even, you know, not even in excess verdict type of cases. They were citing it in property damage cases, first party property cases. And I was like, how does that apply? How does this even change the standard? In fact, the finding that you're right, it clarified that you need both a reasonable demand, but on top of it, you need an unreasonable rejection of the demand from the insurance company. I already thought, and I think everyone thought that that's the standard. You need to show that the insurance company, both the plaintiff made a reasonable demand, but also that the insurance company acted unreasonably. That's the cornerstone of bad faith, insurance company acting unreasonably. I thought that's the standard anyway. So this case isn't very groundbreaking. I just like it because it's a recent case that illustrates you know, how bad faith works and how, you know, how you can set that up and how you can pop the policy. I think it's just an interesting case. It's not groundbreaking. In my okay. Opinion. So let's, let's move away from that case, which I'll mention is the second district court of appeal case and review was not granted. So it's final. Let's move to a case, which is still relatively fresh and new Hediati versus automobile club, interinsurance exchange auto club in Southern California. That's a fourth DCA case. There's apparently a petition pending before the California Supreme Court, so check it before you use it. Much better case for the plaintiffs. In this case, the facts are about as bad as the hypothetical that I gave at the beginning of this podcast. Horrible injury, $25,000 policy. As early as October and September, the carrier knew that the, the facts of the accident were enough to warrant payment of policy limits. The insured himself said he had no money above the, the insurance policy to satisfy any kind of judgment, and it authorized the insurance company to cooperate, disclose his policy limits, et cetera, to plaintiff's lawyer. Plaintiff's lawyer, by the end of October, was already making sounds about making a policy limits demand, was going to make it, was providing information, was asking for information. And then right around the Thanksgiving time, the plaintiff's lawyer makes the demand, the carrier ignores it, comes back at a later time and says, oh, we're, we're willing to consider it now, we need more information. So this case is very different. It isn't a trial case. You mentioned it, how how would the the policy limits, how much the policy limits were. I did, Sean. You just don't listen. It's okay. It's a twenty five thousand dollars policy, yeah, right? And I think that. Well, no. The reason I ask is I think it warrants emphasis because it's just you know if we were talking about a half million dollar policy or even a two hundred fifty. No, with these policy, facts, if you were talking about a half million dollar policy, it would be no different. This person that's true. was that's true. pretty much dead. Yeah, I mean, it, it's and, yeah. and she was a medical student. I don't know what her ultimate condition is, but as a medical student, was hit by a car, is a pedestrian in a crosswalk. There was no question this case was worth $25,000, or $500,000. It's not even a close call. And the case gets tossed on summary judgment, right? Yeah. And the court says, no, no, this can't be, you know, you didn't give enough time. And this is an outstanding opinion because it really lays out not just the groundwork for opening these policies, but it really talks about bad faith in general, what the standard is, a lot of what you and I have been saying already. And what do you think the motivation, I found the case fascinating because it just really illustrates sort of the motivation behind insurance companies and how they operate. And I think the reason they were trying to drag this out and the reason they weren't disclosing the limits, they the reason they weren't providing the deck pages and things like that, the things that the plaintiff's attorney, the victim's attorney had a duty to confirm. The reason they weren't doing that is because, you know, it's a typical strategy that they engage in, in the hopes that you'd accept less money than the policy limits. I don't know. I, I just think it's because insurance companies are fucked up. 
Yeah, well, that's that's is that a legal term? I mean, that's, that's a legal term. I mean, pretty... s- sincerely, the way they operate, yeah, in the claims relationship up. like this is beyond comparison. They should have immediately known once that full demand came in that they need to accept it, they need to get this case taken care of, and they need to get their insured out of harm's way. And instead, the opinion itself talks about the bureaucracy inside the insurance company, that somebody wasn't there to immediately process this letter when it came in, that it should have immediately gotten their attention. It sounds like, you know, Kafka-esque sort of bureaucracy on steroids. And I think that's one of the reasons why going back to what I said at the beginning is don't try to set up an insurance company for bad faith. They're capable of doing it all on their own, right? Yeah. I think the the takeaway here is be very reasonable in the manner in which you approach a demand. Give them time. You know, in your initial letter, you can send it over a holiday weekend. Maybe that's good enough. But if you send it over a holiday weekend, give them five business days at least. Most of my time, most of the time I see this, I like to see somebody giving 30 days or at least two or three weeks for them to respond. If they come back to you with a reasonable request, you know, honor their reasonable request. You need to be reasonable. They need to be unreasonable. And recently when I was talking about this with some colleagues, one of my colleagues, she said, you know, don't you just on behalf of your clients want to know ultimately how much there's going to be there available to pay a demand and to satisfy for your clients' injuries? I mean, don't you want to do the right thing for your clients? And I think that's a lesson to take away from this. Yeah, I think that it's a good, this case is a good illustration of the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, because the court does talk about various things. And you got to keep in mind, it's like Brian said, it got thrown out on summary judgment, I think, in out of the trial court in Orange County. And the Court of Appeal very clearly lays out that, look, a jury could very easily find that it was unreasonable for the insurance company to not respond within the number of days that was provided. It could be unreasonable for the insurance company to not disclose the policy limits. I mean, look, this isn't a, a full finding that all the actions that the insurance company took here were were in bad faith or that they were unreasonable. They don't. There's get a lot of nuances. Areas. There's a yeah, lot of nuances yeah. to these issues when you're opening up a policy. And one of the things to remember when you're opening up a policy is look at the whole thing that you're trying to put together, the package you're trying to put together, the demand itself, what you're asking for in the release, a lot of things that we haven't talked about today. But uh, ultimately, if you want to consult with us or you want to consult with somebody who understands insurance and insurance bad faith, do so when you're in the midst of doing this and get, get somebody involved early who does understand this area of the law. I think it's one of the most critical areas that are misunderstood by plaintiff lawyers, and it's something that is very easy to comprehend if you just spend a few hours trying to, to evaluate the cases and look at it. And if you so, do it in, if you do it the right way, it pay, it can pay off at the end. You know, if you do it the right way and if you act reasonably and you consult with the right people and do it the right way and, and don't think of it as setting it up, just it's doing the right thing, it can pay off at the end. If you end up with a good, bad faith case, hey, that's worthwhile. That's kind of what we do. That's like what we like doing here. There's a whole group of lawyers that does this. So yeah, consult with lawyers that do this, us included, not to shamelessly plug us, but this is something that we do. And, you know, fortunately, I have colleagues and friends that contact us sometimes and ask these questions. And we never look at it as, oh, there's an opportunity. Here comes a bad faith case. It's like, no, it's, and yeah, we're happy time, to answer your questions. Yeah, we we're answer the questions. And questions. fortunately, it works out and they get the money for their client that needs the money probably. And they don't come back because it ultimately doesn't turn into some crazy scenario like the cases that we talked about. But we're there if that happens too. Ultimately. Very few yeah. of these will ever pan out to be 
oh, legitimate yeah. bad faith oh, yeah. cases. Keep that in mind. All right, yeah. listen, this has been a great discussion today about an important single issue. We we try to do these on important single issues as well as update people on cases. I'm Brian Kabatek. This is a civil action. I'm Sean Kernikin and reach out to us anytime. Like I said, open door. Where can here. they find us, Sean? They can find us online at KBK Lawyers, on social media, at Cabotech LLP. What's your home phone number? Uh, I don't have a home phone anymore. It is 2021 now. Nobody has a home phone, really. But I will give everyone Brian's cell phone so you can start texting him. Is that okay with you, Brian? Text him questions anytime you want. Show up at his house. I'll give you his address. No, but really, open door. Contact us anytime you have questions about this kind of stuff, other things you want to hear about, other things you want to share with us. We love when people reach out and say, hey, just I was listening to this episode and I came across this this interesting issue. Do you you guys know anything about it? And I also like when they contact us and say, Sean, you're a lot funnier than Brian. Don't you like that? No one's ever actually made that contact. No, they've said that. Have they? They've said that. Besides your mother? (laughs) That's good. That's a good response. Okay. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Hey, thank you for listening today. We really appreciate it. This is Brian Kabatek. You can reach me at bsk at kbklawyers.com. And I'm Sean Kernick, and you can find me online at sk at kbklawyers.com. And as you might have guessed, our website is kbklawyers.com. You could find us on all social media platforms at Kabatek LLP. We like putting on the show. We appreciate you listening. If you can go online and like us, give us ratings, follow us on all the different platforms. If you know someone that practices in a particular area and you you think they might find this useful, feel free to share it with them. And feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, if you want to bring an interesting case to our attention, you have a potential case you want advice on from us, we'd be happy to help you out if we can. And we'd love to hear from you. 